Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 541st show of ROI. Our guest for today is Ed Broders, retired farmer and longtime ROI staffer. And we're going to be talking about Knoops Hall Part 2. Joining us for the second segment will be our history buffs, John Keeley and Terry Toppler. So to begin with, welcome back to the show, Ed. Thanks, Jay. My usual seat, but not my usual role. There you are. Yeah, this um, is like your third time to be on the uh, guest side of the uh, podium, huh? It is. Yeah. Um, uh, the first order of business here, I think, uh, is to uh, acknowledge my sources. Um, my dad talked about Knoops Hall, um, which... You know, he grew up, as I did, a mile from the place. And then there's Mrs. Alberta Paustian Knutson, who sadly passed away this last year, but she grew up two blocks east of the place and started working there when she was 14. Um, Mrs. Connie Knutson uh, Koss, parents bought the place, and Harvey and Ruby bought the place in 1949 and owned it through the mid-'60s. Uh, my dad's cousin, Ruth Siepke, gave me a little information. Um and probably the biggest source was the Tri-County Museum um, in Davenport, or in Durant, which has uh, as much information on Knoops Hall as anybody. And then the last place I got, um, I got information was from newspaper advertisements in the Muscatine, Davenport, and Rock Island Argus newspapers dating back to the 1800s. So um, now that that's out of the way... Uh, Stockton is located in northeast Muscatine County, and um, the hall was built by a f f for a fellow named Henry Beerkamp in 1890, and it was quite a place. Um, the uh, one of the newspapers in Muscatine described it as Beerkamp's new hall as one of the handsomest public rooms in Iowa. It is elegantly frescoed. Seated with opera chairs, possesses a band balcony, will accommodate to 200 to 300 people, and is said to be the finest such place on the Rock Island Railroad from Davenport to Council Bluffs outside of the larger cities. Um, and it was a beautiful place, and it was used for any number of purposes. Uh, in the 1890s, there's a couple of articles about uh, both Democratic and Republican political rallies being held in the place. And it was also used for a variety of other purposes. Uh, the Stockton School had their Christmas program there in 1931. Sure. And um, the Stockton camp of the Royal Neighbors of America, which has largely fallen apart as a large organization in the Stockton chapter, I think there's two members still alive. They were sponsored by uh, Royal Neighbors Insurance Company, and uh, it was a fraternal organization, and to be a full member, you had to buy uh, an insurance policy from Royal Neighbors. But anyway, they used to have card parties was part of their... It was also a social organization. They would have public card parties there, sometimes in conjunction with a dance, sometimes not. But it was also used, uh, of course, the biggest use over time uh, was... Uh, was as a dance hall, and um, th and there were four owners between Henry Beerkamp, the first the first owner, and 
W.C. Knoop, who bought the place in 1923. And it appears that Knoop was the guy that really put this place on the map. He was a promoter. And, of course, if you were going to run a dance hall in the uh, 1920s, uh, particularly, and 30s, you, need to, you needed to have a source of bootleg liquor. And apparently he didn't have any trouble with that. Um, but the place was uh, really a beautiful building, and it was quite large, all things considered. The largest crowd they had was on January 8th, 1958, when my dad's cousin, Gloria Siepke, had a wedding dance after she married Donald Fox. <laughs> and it was January 8th, so they were all, may not have all been there at one time, but they were all inside. Well, and I, it feels to me like, because I was lucky enough, and, and I recommend everybody to go uh, to SoundCloud.com and uh, find this particular show, because it really was fascinating. But the one thing I really didn't have a sense of, how big is Stockton? Um, not very anymore. Uh, in 1950, the population had bird, had had uh, had expanded to 165, but early at the turn of the 20th century, it was maybe 120 people or something like that. And of course, it was a railroad town, and it was kind of a tough place, but that's what railroad towns were like. Sure, but I, I mean that just makes me. This is a this is the big building in Stockton, right? I oh mean, yeah. In, in terms of, you know, far more than you know, you may have had some general stores or whatever along the way, but but really, this thing stood out not not just in Stockton, but in the surrounding countryside in terms of size. That's right, and one of the reasons um, that it was so popular, I think, is because the people that wound up living in what I'll call the Tri-County area, west of Davenport, Durant, in you know east, eastern Muscatine County, north, and, and western Scott County. By the turn of the 20th century, almost all the land was owned by people who had it, whose ancestors had come from or themselves had come from Schleswig-Holstein in northern Germany, and they were not poor. They were basically political outcasts who, having been on the wrong side of revolutions in Europe in the 1840s and 50s, came over here. And their, their uh, culture, of course, being German, included lots of music, beer, dancing, parties, and excluded churches. Now, I don't think we can extrapolate that they were atheists, but I checked in the 1894 and 1905 atlases of Scott County, and for the four counties in what I'll call western Scott County, uh, there was only one country church, and that was in uh, Buffalo Township and laid southeast of Bluegrass a little ways. And Hickory Grove Township, there was, there was a church that was not labeled by denomination in Hickory Grove Township, but that's four miles east and four miles north of Walcott. Sure. And in Fulton Township, there were a couple of old churches that were of Methodist origin, which, of course, would be English. Right. Uh, but in terms of the traditional Catholic and Luther, German Catholic and Lutheran churches, they simply, they simply did not exist. They were never there. Um, and this was the only place in Iowa, as I understand it, that was secular. And whether they rejected the church 
or whether the church rejected them, I think was probably mutual. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. In times of joy, in moments of grief, broadcasters come through even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Ed Broders, retired farmer and proud ROI staffer, and we're talking about Canoops Hall Part 2. History buffs for today are John Keeley and Terry Toppler. John, why don't you start us off? Um, going back to that area, Ed, because you know my family's from that as well. Right. Uh, and I told you before, my grandfather, when they asked him, why did you go to the Walcott-Stockton area, his response was, uh, the towns didn't have a church and they didn't have a jail. So he thought that was the perfect place to have a farm around, but... Um, at least what I was taught, there was the farmers that I grew up with had a substantial amount of hostility towards not just the Lutheran church, but pretty much any church. And that started to change in the 50s. Have you heard similar stories like that? Yeah, that's that's generally. Uh, I think over time that hostility probably ebbed a little bit. But the uh, original church in Durant was founded in 1854, St. Paul's Episcopal, and that, of course, was Anglican. But, uh, yeah, my uh, on my dad's side of the family, going back at least two or three generations, nobody went to church. And on my mother's side, my mother was raised four miles east of Eldridge Corners in rural Scott County, and my one living aunt told me that growing up, that she never knew anybody that went to church. Terry. Yeah, I do find that interesting. I also have ancestors from Schleswig-Holstein, and they were not churchgoers either, so it makes me wonder why. But my question has to do um, with Knuth Hall. You said it was multipurpose, um, including a dance hall. Can you talk to me a little bit about were there restrictions for those who work there at the dance hall and for those who attended? I mentioned earlier in the show that Mrs. Alberta Knutson had uh, no relation to Harvey and Ruby, had started working there at age 14. She worked on dance nights on days that she didn't have school, and dance nights were Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. But she used to be there at 7 a.m. to help uh, start making hamburger patties because there's a full kitchen uh, for the dance, but she was under very strict rules that she was to be out of that place and home by five o'clock. As far as the other folks were concerned, uh, there was a couple named Ralph and Lola Close, whose uh, great-grandchildren I went to school with. 
uh, that, that took the tickets and took care of the money. Uh, from the start, it looks like the security for the place was uh, all off-duty policemen from outside of Scott County. And it also seems clear that from the outset that the police were there to provide security as opposed to checking the drinking age because my dad said he started buying whiskey over the counter at age 15. Now, everybody knew him, and he only lived a mile away. On the other hand, he was age 15. <laughs> well, and I think that that's one of the, the most interesting things to me about this concept of a, of a dance hall. Um, and I'll talk about my grandfather later um, who had one too, but very different in the sense that you know, this is really small community, uh, small community magnet. I mean, I'm sure there were folks coming from Davenport and whatever, maybe even from farther away in Des Moines. And, but in general, this is a pretty localized population of folks that are using this, which means everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, everybody kind of has a sense of what's going on. Everybody knows who the troublemakers are. Everybody knows who, um, and I, you know, I loved your story of the guy who would come and sit outside and wait for the, the malcontents to be tossed out by the cops as his form of entertainment. But there had to be that whole sense of people percolating around and, and talking about what went on at the dance hall. Do, do your sources have any of that sense of, what I would call the the larger, the gestalt of the community? Well, it was a pretty big area that they drew from. Somewhere along the way in the last few years, I talked to a woman who was raised in McCausland, and that's 40 miles away, and there weren't very many hard roads up until after World War II. But she talked about going to Stockton to a dance. Mm -hmm. And my friend's dad, who was born in 1919 and lived 10 miles west of Muscatine, also talked about coming to Stockton to a dance. The, uh, the other part of this, I think, that is that most people stopped their schooling um, at eighth grade. And since you, didn't, you weren't going to meet anybody new at church because there was no church, this was the place. Places like this were the place. And since Canoops Hall was on a main line of the Rock Island Road and had rooms upstairs where the band members could stay overnight until the next train came in, I think this gave them a leg up compared to a lot of other places because a big place can hire a better band. And most of the bands they hired were regionally well-known. And the thing that I ran across in the advertising that I thought was really interesting, I spoke on the first program about WMT in Cedar Rapids doing live remotes when Tom Owen and his Cowboys would play, uh, the uh, the other the other bands, um, and I'm not quite sure the relationship between WMT and these bands, but the advertisements would be Tom Owen and his WMT Cowboys, and there was Les Herman and his W Hartman, I'm sorry, and his WMT German band. And so I haven't quite got that figured out. But one of the interesting things was that the Stockton Dance Hall actually sponsored a radio program on KSTT back in the 30s of a half-hour program entitled Bohemian Varieties. 
And this kind of makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because in the ads, there was a a band from Cedar Rapids uh, where the fellow had a Czech, obviously Czech last name, and sure. they played at Stockton somewhat regularly. And apparently WMT um, had some role in this, and I'm not sure what it is. But that that isn't that does because you're mentioning KSTT. I'm old enough to remember KSTT sponsoring all sorts of local band events in Davenport, for example. So it makes sense that that would be happening. What thirty years earlier or forty years earlier, whatever that works out to. Well, and it would make sense because they played. They were always a popular music station, and the popular music of the day in the 1930s probably wasn't the same as what it was in the 60s and 70s. Sure, probably not. <laughs> Although maybe there's a there's a correlation between the two, but yeah, it wouldn't be. Um, John? Uh, going back to what you were talking about with the plane, my, uh, your, your dad and mom were kind of a generation older than my dad, but he said, and it wasn't just the one in Scotland, uh, Scotland, uh, Stockton, excuse me, um, but also the one out in uh, near uh, Eldridge, you know, or on the way to uh, uh, DeWitt, you know, the Fairyland one out there. Dad said that the, a lot of times the parties or the dances would follow the farming seasons. And that's what uh, my dad heard about it. And his friends heard about it from working on other farms when uh, hay baling was up and word was getting around that, you know, the kids are going from one farm to the other. You heard that those dance halls were putting on events. And my dad kind of said that, you know, these places were not uh, the owners weren't out of touch by any means. And when the seasons changed, so did their uh, their calendars. For, for events to get the young people there. Have you heard something like that, Ed? Well, I think it makes sense that the crowds would uh, ebb and flow. Um, given the size of the rural population at the time, it would make sense that the crowds kind of ebbed and flowed with the season. Stockton ran year-round, as far as I know, and um, Fairyland closed down for the winter. And I don't know right. if they ran till Christmas and then closed up till the 1st of April or something. I don't know the details. But that was not uncommon. And, yes, just about every dance hall had special event type of dance. And the one that caught my eye was from 1943 in March where the Coliseum in Walcott hosted a band called Al Schneckloth and his roving Iowans. I'm sorry, Iowa Ramblers. But they played in Walcott and admission during, in 1943, and admission was 40 cents. But it was a dance for the War Emergency Fund. Oh, so it sure. was a fundraiser. And the next night, that same band played in Stockton. Uh, admission was only 30 cents. But Stockton, during the war, always advertised that military personnel in uniform and their dates would get in for free. Sure. And, and another note, my dad said that you went to the dance hall and you met your future spouse. And then when you got married, the wedding reception was always in the same dance hall that you met her. 
And they said that was how the dance halls did a really good job of, you know, not only introducing, but three or four or five years down the road, making the buck off the wedding receptions. Yes. In Stockton, my dad's cousin, Gloria Seepke Fox, told me that on their wedding reception in 1958, that they got a small cut of the gate, which was enough to put a deposit on a deep freeze. Now, in Walcott, the arrangement was different, where if you were going to have your wedding dance there, you could purchase a case of liquor from the hall that you could give away. And after that, you you got half of the proceeds from the bar sales if after the expenses were paid, but you also had to hire the band. Um, okay. And I got a sense that Walcott might have been a little more lucrative. On the other hand, Stockton was a bigger place, and it was not uncommon to get 800 people. Sure. Sure. Terry. Yeah, Ed, you mentioned that Stockton is a railroad town. Can you talk to us, what are the characteristics of a railroad town, and how is it so much different than another rural town in Iowa? Well, there weren't very many rural towns in Iowa that didn't have a railroad, and the ones that were built speculating that the railroad would get there and it never came, they went as fast as they sprang up. Now, Stockton was a railroad town. Uh, one time, they had a stockyards, they had a bank, a couple of hotels, um, and oddly, four shoe repair shops. But it was a typical town. I mean, uh, almost all these little towns had banks. Sunbury had a bank, which is up north of Durant. Pleasant Prairie, which is south of Stockton a little ways, had a bank. Much of this stuff collapsed during the Great Depression. But, uh, yeah, it was typical small town, and, you know, it was where people went because before the 1920s, getting, any play, getting to Stockton was a, was a tough trick because the Highway 6 wasn't paved until 1920. So yeah. people didn't go very far from home. Sure. Um, Ed, I mentioned earlier that my grandfather shares uh, in this story a little bit in that he lived, um, he was a very wealthy, very successful farmer in uh, Peoria and owned thousands of acres. Based, most of what is now East Peoria belonged to him at some point or another. Um, and he built a dance hall called Farnwood specifically to take advantage of the fact of prohibition because he was a teetotaler. And then he ended up losing his his shirt literally as the depression came along um, because he wouldn't give it up. When prohibition was was repealed, he wouldn't serve alcohol. You mentioned that that in Stockton, Canoops Hall obviously had a a uh, a system of of getting bootleg hooch, um, and you had cops there. So obviously, the community had no problem. Can you talk a little bit about that, that sort of, I don't know, salutary neglect? <laughs> well, Stockton was no different than any other place during Prohibition. Now, geographically, it was convenient for the dance hall to be in far northeast Muscatine County. And so the sheriff probably had other things to work on. Um, but otherwise, like every other place that was selling bootleg liquor, they were tipped off. 
if there was a raid coming, they knew it. And so there, there was an old house on the north side of the tracks with the dance hall on being on the south side. But there was a house on the north side where Bill Knoop was alleged to have stashed his bootleg whiskey and such when the inspectors were coming. I don't know if it can be verified anymore, but uh, Alberta talked about how on uh, Saturday mornings there would be a black car show up with Illinois license plates and they would unload cases of whiskey and such. And that apparently was the weekly delivery. Okay. (laughs) And as far as law enforcement uh, in Stockton, you know, fights were part of the dance. It just... Sure. It was how it came with the territory. You <laughs> right. got young young people and liquor, okay? Right. Uh, Stockton had a single jail cell in an old building a couple blocks up the street. And if things got out of hand, the uh, security people would uh, take the worst of the offenders and put them in this jail cell up the street and come around the next morning and turn them loose after they'd sobered up. But I, I guess what I was what I was hoping to get at is just that that idea of you have a culture a German culture in which alcohol does play a big part. Oh yeah, and and so prohibition may come along and it may be the law of the land, but when I'm out here in the in the countryside and and whatever, I don't have to play by those rules. And this was a group of people who what half a you know two generations earlier had already had their issues with governments telling me what to do. You know, I just, I wonder if that also had part of that sort of look, every everybody looked the other way kind of. Well, over time, the people that came uh, of, of Schleswig-Holstein, from Schleswig-Holstein, did develop uh, a sense of what we might call conservative today, but uh, I don't know if deregulation is the right word, but they didn't want government interfering in their lives any more than necessary because they were also big on human rights and they were big on democracy, but they just were tired of listening to the government tell them what to do in, in northern Germany. And, you know, that's still out there. Sure. Absolutely. Well, and also there was a huge, um, there was a definite difference in Schleswig-Holstein between a lot of it was also the Danes fighting the Germans on at the turf, and there was a lot of have or have not. So that also played a lot into it. Um, John, I'm going to let you ask the the last history buff question, but try to make it a short one because we've only got about a minute. Okay, how many times did your family members get busted for bootlegging, Ed? <laughs> uh, none that they ever talked about. <laughs> okay. Right. Short enough. <laughs> but my dad said that during Prohibition, my grandfather always had several bottles of beer in the well pit. Oh. And I can't imagine he could have gotten that any place but from Bill Knoop. Sure. Right. <laughs> who, who was the, the local supplier extraordinaire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and just part of the service of the community, right? That's right. <laughs> well, it's our customary uh, process to give our guests the last word on the show. Ed, why do you think knowing about Canoops Hall is relevant today? Part of it, uh, I think, is that we see in this country today some of the things that I think are highly reminiscent of the reasons that caused the people to leave Schleswig-Holstein in the first place. 
and specifically individual rights are being trampled on. Secularism seems to be on the ropes, and democracy itself is under serious assault. So I think there's some, and that was part of the culture um, in which Knoop's Hall found itself. I'm going to add to that the idea that I think places like that are important, particularly in today's world, because we don't have as many of them. We don't have those places that are community magnets anymore. Um, we're spread out. We're you know now the internet is as you know it's hard to get people out of their houses sometimes. Um, John talks about uh, during COVID missing live music and how hard it was to, to find that. And I think places like Canoops Hall, we tend to forget that, that that's an option, that, that you have an option for culture to, to have a, a gathering spot where, we, you know, yeah, young people showed up, but I imagine everybody showed up. Well, you know, that's one of the things that I've thought about a lot, and I recently read a book called Headed into the Abyss that addresses that where because of technology – and what the author describes as web world, um, physical places are disappearing. And it isn't just in rural America where all these farms have disappeared. It's in small-town America, but it's also Main Street. And one of the things that we need to pay attention to is that we maintain our natural spaces as well because already today you can put on a pair of virtual reality goggles you can be any place, and you don't know the difference between being there and it actually existing. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 541st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsaptel. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Ed Broders, retired farmer and proud ROI staffer. And we've been talking about the Canoops Hall, Part 2. History buffs for today were John Keeley and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.